Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. This morning, uh, I want to talk again about the power of our words. And this morning, we want to talk about the power of our words to both cut and connect. See, sadly, we are often far too quick to use our words like a sword that separates rather than a salve that soothes and heals. From the 7th century until 1905, when they outlawed it, the Chinese executed their most vile criminals using a method known as Ling Chi which loosely translates as death by a thousand cuts. It's also the name of an excellent Taylor Swift song. Criminals were tied to a wooden post and cuts were systematically administered to bare flesh. They would start with the chest and they would uh, remove flesh and muscle until the ribs were almost visible. Then they moved on to the arms and then finally to the thighs. And what separated Ling Chi from other methods of execution was the intent to see how long a person could actually remain alive in the midst of it. And so if you think about it, in most forms of execution, the goal was and is to bring death as quickly as possible. But Ling Chi, similar to uh, Roman crucifixion, had, that had, the, had, they had the exact opposite goal. Some people did in fact die in as little as 15 minutes, which if you ask me, still sounds like an eternity to go through that, but others were said to have lived for hours, enduring up to 3,000 cuts. And so my point is this, there was never one deep life-ending thrust. Instead, there were these small cuts that were administered over an extended period of time that eventually took a person's life. And if you stop and you think about it, cutting words have a similar effect on our relationships. Now, I would not go so far as to say this has never happened, but what I would say is I've never seen an otherwise healthy relationship end because of one epic fight where cutting words were spoken. I've never personally seen that. What I have seen is countless relationships end over time due to an unhealthy pattern of communication where cutting words are normative. See, the fact is, when cutting words are the norm, death of relationship is inevitable. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly, like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, this Hebrew word that we translate into English as speaks rashly means to speak with defiant disregard of consequences or to speak in a reckless manner. So Solomon here pictures a person who recklessly cuts with their words like someone blindly swinging a sword without concern for the damage that it will do to others. And so the bottom line is our relationships hang in the balance when it comes to our words. And so here's our very simple but essential big idea this morning. Cutting words kill, and constructive words heal. Cutting words kill, and constructive words heal. Remember, Proverbs 18.21 warns us that the power of both life and death are in the tongue. 
And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to lean into two kinds of cutting words that we need to trade for their constructive counterparts. So we're going to call this message, Death by a Thousand Cuts. And if you haven't yet, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or apps that you're going to be reading on and go to James chapter 4. We're going to look at two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12. uh, And we're going to frame these two verses as two kinds of cutting words we need to trade. Okay, James chapter 4, 11 and 12, two kinds of cutting words we need to trade. The first one is this. We need to trade criticism for honor. Trade criticism for honor. Look with me at James chapter 4, verse 11, just this first sentence to start. James says this. He says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Super straightforward, very clear. Don't criticize one another. Now, depending on the translation that you're reading from, yours may read, do not speak evil against one another or do not slander one another. But regardless of how uh, your translation comes across in English, all of them are trying to translate this Greek word that means to speak against. The Greek word has a necessarily combative tone to it. It can include a host of cutting forms of speech. But our English word criticize, I believe, best sums it up. See, See, criticism speaks with the specific intent of crushing an opponent. That's the goal of criticism. So we're not talking here about the careful and constructive conversations that we have in love, where we maybe bring um, a destructive or a dangerous behavior to, to the attention of someone that we care about because it's hurting them or it's hurting us. When we talk about, when James is talking about criticism, that's not what he's talking about. We're talking about the words that we speak out of hurt, anger, irritation or insecurity with the intent to crush. See, every critical word that we speak casts more and more and more weight onto already fragile relationships. I think we overlook sometimes how fragile even the healthiest of our relationships are because people, as humans, we are fragile. And so every critical word that we speak just casts more and more and more weight. One of the things that we do in our gym periodically is we test our our max weight for a particular lift. And so just this Friday, uh, we were doing that, and we were testing uh, our power snatch, which involves taking a barbell from the ground directly overhead. Now, if you've ever done these single rep lifts, you know that you, you never just like walk in and start with whatever you think your max weight is, unless you're trying to kill yourself, because that's what will happen. You will die. You have to warm up, you have to get adjusted to that, all of those things. So what you do is you have to work your way up to that weight. You do a rep at a weight that you can do, and then you add a little bit more weight. And then you do another rep, and you add a little bit more weight. So I was doing this on Friday, and I started with something super easy, and then added a little bit more weight. And that second rep was a little bit heavier, but it was still manageable, and so we added a little bit more weight. I think I did this six times and was able to complete every rep. Every single one was a little heavier than the one before, but I was able to get it overhead. And so after that sixth attempt, I decided I'm going to add a little bit more weight. And guess what happened? That one did not go overhead. <laughs> that one, Dee Dee was there. She saw it happen. <laughs> it, 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 it got to about chest level, and then I started to fall backwards, and it was going to crush me, and so I had to bail out and drop that weight. I don't know that that laugh was necessarily acceptable in that case, okay? It was a scary moment for me. <clears throat> but if you think about it, this is the effect of criticism on the soul. 
See, rarely does a single criticism crush you, but a pattern of, commun- of criticism poisons the soul until it slowly dies. And so every time you criticize a friend, every time you, and I mean every time, every time you criticize a coworker, every time you criticize your spouse, your kids, your parents, what you're doing is adding a little bit more weight and a little bit more weight and a little bit more weight to their soul and to your relationship with them. And whether we realize it or not, it's only a matter of time until that criticism crushes them and crushes the relationship. Now, the opposite of criticism that crushes is honor that builds up. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. And I want you to listen to in Romans 12, 10, how he calls us specifically to demonstrate that love. He says, love one another deeply. And then he says this, take the lead in honoring one another. Now to honor is to uh, respect one another have this deep sense of reverence for one another, despite our many differences, due to the fact that we are all created in God's very image. Now, this honor is more than just an inward posture of our hearts toward a person. Because remember, whatever is in our hearts will manifest itself through our speech. And so what this means is, if we genuinely feel a sense of honor toward one another, it is going to manifest itself in our words. It will necessarily find its way out of us and into that other person's understanding through the words that we speak. So kind words, honor, and compassionate words, honor, and patient and loving words, honor. And and understand, taking the lead in honoring one another does not even demand these grand displays of honor. It can be just the simple encouragement of a word. I'll give you an example from just this morning. Um, I had a super fruitful week this week, but it was also very draining. And so Saturday morning, yesterday morning, I woke up and it just felt like the adrenaline of the week had worn off and I felt exhausted and I felt depressed. And I'm trying to get better about not carrying those emotions alone anymore. So I told Tammy I was feeling that way. I told Tyler I was feeling that way. But by and large, I just felt depressed yesterday. And so this morning I woke up and I got ready to come here to the MC to prep. And uh, usually Tam is asleep uh, when I leave on Sunday mornings, but Lincoln crawled into our bed and kicked us all night long. So we were both wide awake and ready to start the day. So she was downstairs and she, she walked me to the front door and uh, as I was getting into the front seat of my car, I just glanced back at her and she gave me this look and she just goes, you're cute, and shuts the door. Just two words. And I could have fought a mountain lion with my bare hands. <laughs> I was ready to fight any battle, take any hill. It was the simplest. It wasn't this profound display. It was just two simple words. And I got here and Pastor Tyler had written me a super encouraging note that was just sitting right on top of my desk. And the effect that these very simple words had on me is nothing short of miraculous. And so my point is even the simplest displays of honor strengthen the soul. And so we really have two options. We can criticize one another and we can add weight 
to another soul and to our relationships until it crushes already fragile relationships, or we can simply take the lead in honoring one another with our words in order to strengthen, to build up, and to solidify the relationships that God has blessed us with. Cutting words kill, but constructive words heal. And so let's trade criticism for honor. Now here's the second kind of cutting speech that we need to trade. Number two is this, trade judgment for unity. Trade judgment for unity. Look back at James 4.11. So he started saying, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. He then continues saying, anyone who defames or judges, circle that word judges in your Bible, judges a fellow believer, defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So I want you to notice that James gives his rationale for not criticizing one another. He says, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. So James is saying here that there are judgments that are not ours to make. Now, Jesus summarized the law. If you're familiar with the gospels, he summarized the entire Old Testament law very simply and succinctly. He summarized the whole law as love God and love people. And when we judge people unfairly, we are not loving them and we defy the very law that we are saved in order to obey. And so let's talk for a second about judging because this is an issue that is so easy for us to misunderstand. In James 4 here, James is echoing Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when he said, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now, curiously, this is the one verse that everyone on the planet seems to know. Even if they're not familiar with the Bible, everybody knows, well, Jesus said don't judge. Like, that's just the one verse everybody knows. So what happens is someone confronts something in your life, and then right at the forefront of your mind and waiting on the tip of your tongue is Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. But the problem is, when it comes to the Bible... We can't just ask the question, what does the text say? We also have to ask the question, what does the text mean? Make sense? That's the, the first is just observation. The second one is a question of interpretation. What does the text say? The text says, don't judge. But what does the text mean? So when Jesus says, do not judge, the question that we ask is, in what sense does he intend the word judge? Now, oftentimes, this verse is quoted as if Jesus is condemning every expression of judgment imaginable. The problem with that is like six or seven verses ahead of verse one. Because that can't be right, because in, as we get to verse 15 of chapter seven and 16, Jesus says this. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, for inwardly they are ravaging wolves. And then listen to what he says. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. So what this is, is a call to make careful judgments. Jesus prescribed that his first followers and we, by extension, would guard ourselves from the influence of false teaching by judging the fruit of that teacher's message and life. 
Now, you might read that and think, see, like the Bible is just constantly contradicting itself. In verse 1, Jesus says, don't judge. Then in verse 15, Jesus is telling us to judge false prophets by the fruit of their lives. See, the Bible always contradicts itself. But the truth is, the Bible does not contradict its own message. The Bible contradicts our misinterpretations. And that's a very big difference. When we come to a place in the Bible that seems to contradict itself, we need to have the humility to acknowledge, maybe I'm not understanding this correctly, instead of assuming, see, God can't seem to make up his mind. Because what happens here in Matthew chapter 7 is not a contradiction of message, it's a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus and James call us not to judge, they have a particular type of judgment in mind. Alexander Strock comments on James 4, and he says this, To judge, in this sense, is to unnecessarily or inappropriately condemn a brother or sister by judging the person's motives or appearances, or to judge with the wrong motive or for the wrong reason. He finishes saying, It is making judgment statements about another that are not rightly ours to make. So, we're not forbidden from all forms of judgment as followers of Jesus. We just have to learn the difference between right and wrong judgments because there are some judgments that are not ours to make. And so to that end, let me give you three guardrails for right judgment. If we can live within the confines of these three things, nine times out of 10, we will be on the side of making right judgments in life, okay? So three guardrails for right judgment. The first is this, be a student of your sin, not others. Be a student of your sin, not others. See, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 that we were just talking about, this was the great failure of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' tendency was to make these sweeping judgments about others, yet completely miss the glaring presence of sin in their own lives. Now, this isn't to say that there is never a time for us to lovingly confront sin in one another's lives. We need that. But, but, but the truth is, I find that Jesus has so much that he wants to change in me that when I'm working with him on that, I genuinely just so rarely have the capacity to be preoccupied with, what, with whatever he wants to deal with in you. And maybe you just have less sin in your life, but I don't think that's the case. Furthermore, when we are an when we have this honest awareness of our own sin, it tempers the way that we ever judge the sin of another person. And it tempers it because we have empathy and compassion for others because we know how deep sin runs in our own hearts. In fact, here's a judgment for you. Show me a person who is quick to point out the sin in others and I'll show you someone who is only barely aware of their sin in their own heart. People that are just like, hungry, chomping at the bit to call out sin in everyone else, very rarely are very aware of their own sin. And that's a problem. The more deeply we understand our own sin, the less desperate we are to judge everybody else's. So three guardrails for right judgment. The first is be a student of your sin, not others. Here's the second. Don't judge the motives of others. This is one of, if not the most critical point for us to take away this morning. Do not judge the motives of others. And here's why. You should never make judgments about things you can't know because you're speculating and you're guessing. 
You can't make judgments about things you don't know. So we can judge actions because we can see actions, but we can't judge motive because we can't see motive, and so we should not make judgments about them. In 1 Kings 8, 39, Solomon prays to God saying, you alone know every human heart. You and I do not know the hearts of one another. We can't see that. We don't know that. We can see action, but only God sees and knows motive. I'll give you a silly example. If you uh, were wearing a blue shirt this morning, I can make a judgment that says, um, your shirt is blue, right? Because I can see it. But what I can't say is, you know what? He chose to wear that blue shirt because he thinks it makes his eyes pop. Blue shirts do make my eyes pop. That's why I know. So I know my motive, but I don't know yours. <laughs> I don't know your motive. That, that would be a judgment of motive. And we laugh, but these types of judgments of motive get us into a sea of trouble relationally. We are constantly assigning motive to actions. And the problem with that is you can't see a person's motives. You rarely know what is behind the actions of others. And so we have to adopt this practice in relationship with one another of seeking clarification prior to assigning motive. Seek clarification prior to assigning motive. So we have to learn to say things like, hey, hey when you said this or when you, when you did that, it, it felt personal or like there was something else that more that was behind it. Am I, am I right in that or did I misunderstand? That's wildly different than coming at someone and accusing them of what their motive is. Because I am shocked how frequently my assumption of motive is entirely inaccurate. And when we project that, and when we say that, we get ourselves into even more trouble and we put more weight on the relationship. So three guardrails for right judgment. The first is be a student of your sin, not others. The second is don't, don't judge the motive of others. And the third is allow freedom in open-handed issues. This is super important for us as a church, and it's super important in the season of life that we find ourselves in. Allow freedom in open-handed issues. See, when it comes to following the way of Jesus, there are certain things that we hold in a closed hand and many things that we have to hold in an open hand. And let me explain the difference between those two. Some issues are closed-handed, meaning they are so essential to Christian faith that if we don't hold to them, we cannot, in fact, be biblical followers of Jesus, okay? So like a, an example would be the biblical conviction that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's what we hold to biblically as followers of Jesus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That conviction we have to hold in the closed hand. Good works and our efforts play no part in our salvation. Now the belief that good works contribute to salvation is so diametrically opposed to the message of the Bible, you cannot be a biblical follower of Jesus and believe and practice works-based salvation. Does that make sense? That is essential, foundational, it is bedrock to the Christian faith. And so we hold that in what we call the closed hand. Now, in the open hand are a bunch of other issues that may be important, but aren't foundational to our faith in the same way, and we have freedom to believe differently about them. 
Now, kind of the hot button issues change generationally throughout time. So at one point, it was like dancing was a really big deal. And you were like, if you've seen Footloose, you know that. Like you just can't, you can't dance and be a Christian. There were a lot of people. I don't know a ton of people right now. I'm, they're still out there, I'm sure. But um, I, I don't think anyone in this room is like super anti, like you're going straight to hell if your hips move, okay, when Taylor Swift is on. You're welcome for that, by the way. Unfortunately, unfortunately, on the live stream, you only get waist up, but you just missed some serious hip action this morning. That's as close as I come to dancing. So now we have maybe not dancing, but we've got other things that it's so critical that we hold in the open hand, but that we're prone because of our convictions to want to close our fingers around. So these are things like how we vote. Everybody get that? No, no more of this like, you can't vote Democrat and be a Christian. Or you can't vote Republican and be a Christian. You don't have a Bible verse that says that. And as a result, we hold that in the open hand. So how we vote, things like whether or not you choose to drink alcohol, things like what kind of media you choose to consume. Like I might have super deep convictions regarding God's will for me in these areas, but it is not my place to make judgments about your convictions in those areas. Those we live, we hold in the open hand. So we have these three, are we okay? I love these moments where it just gets tense for a second. I thrive on them. I feel like everyone else is really uncomfortable, but I, I find them just enjoyable. So hope we're okay. Three guardrails for right judgment. Be a student of your sin rather than others. Don't judge the motives of other people. And then three, we have to learn to allow freedom in open-handed issues. And so in, in place of these types of divisive judgments that we are prone to make and communicate, we, we should pursue unity in all things. In all things. Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Paul's talking about the same kinds of judgments that James was and that Jesus was. Instead, he says, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. So what this means is, as followers of Jesus, unity and love are greater priorities than freedom. Does that make sense? If you are a follower of Jesus, unity and love are greater priorities than freedom. And so in these secondary, open-handed issues, we have freedom, but we don't practice that freedom at the expense of love and unity. And this is one way in which the American spirit is in opposition to the way of Jesus. Because in America, freedom is everything. And freedom, make no mistake, is good. And it's a gift, but it's not everything. And in America, we make freedom everything. And so for many Americans, the idea of sacrificing freedom for virtually any reason is just unthinkable. And what complicates it for us is our inability to separate American ideals from biblical ideals. We believe that because America was supposedly founded as a Christian country, which is not actually entirely accurate, that everything that is American is in fact Christian. And that is why evangelicalism is upside down in so many ways right now. Because not every American ideal is necessarily a Jesus ideal. 
And in our thinking on freedom, we have an example of that. This is a dangerous mistake. Freedom is a gift that we should be grateful for, but it is not a God that we bow to. And so we don't practice our freedom at the expense of love and unity with one another. And so let's trade these judgmental thoughts and statements about these open-handed issues. Let's trade all of that for unity and for love at every turn. Cutting words kill, and constructive words heal. So here's my, here's my big concern in all of this. Again, I'm not so much worried about that one big blowout fight that ends a relationship. I'm way more concerned about everything that comes before it. Because what I'm concerned about is the severe lack of awareness on our parts regarding the accumulative effect of cutting words over time. Because in the moment they seem so small, we think that they are insignificant. But just because something's small does not mean it's insignificant. And so just in closing, I want you to think about it like trying to fill a bucket with water using only an eyedropper. So in and of itself, no single drop appears to be of any significance because the amount is just simply too small. It's just a single drop of water in a bucket. But if you continue to add drop after drop after drop to that bucket, eventually it's going to be filled to the brim. And at some point, when you add just one too many drops, the water is going to begin to spill over the rim and the bucket is going to overflow. And that's the accumulative effect of cutting words over time. No single criticism, no single judgment, no single complaint is enough to break a relationship. But day after day after day of these cutting words is surely enough to kill them. It's death by a thousand cuts. And so I, I want to give you a very practical challenge this week. I want to challenge you to intentionally honor or encourage at least one person every day this week. It's that simple. Honor or encourage one person every day this week. I'd especially encourage you to pick at least one relationship where you know maybe there's been some tension. Maybe there's been some cuts that have been made. Now, you can communicate that encouragement or that honor face-to-face. -face. You can do it via text or email, a card, a letter, whatever. But pray about it. Make it personal. Make your words sincere. As we continue to surrender our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms and changes our hearts. And as our hearts change, so do our words. These cutting words will kill but the constructive ones that we speak will heal. And so let's intentionally trade cutting words for constructive ones this week. And let's pray by asking the Holy Spirit to continue to change our hearts in this direction and guide us into the, this this week. So why don't you do me a favor and stand right where you are, throw your mask on if you're going to sing here in the room. I want to close us in prayer. Matt's going to lead us and then we'll do some Q&A. So if you're watching at home, why don't you close your eyes and let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you that you uh, are a God who uh, is so committed to our health and the health of our relationships. You love and care about us so much that you would instruct us on these very practical, simple matters. And Lord, we just acknowledge that we all have 
a tendency to use and to speak cutting words. And Lord, some of us listen in this moment right now and we know that we have relationships in our lives that maybe feel like they are just one drop away, one cutting word away from being crushed or killed. And so, Father, we ask you for grace and for mercy in those situations, that you would humble our hearts, that we would feel a sense of conviction over how we are not always careful with this powerful gift and tool of speech that you have given us. And Lord, this is an area where I I need to grow so much and where we need to grow so much. And ultimately, Lord, we know the problem does not lie just in our words, but in our hearts. And so would you continue to teach us what it looks like to surrender and submit our hearts to you? And would you change us and transform us from the inside out? Lord, we need your help in this. And so we ask that you would do that. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone listening that has not surrendered their life to you and has not chosen by your grace through faith to trust Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would awaken their hearts to that now and that you would begin this process of transformation in our hearts that results in changed and transformed and healing words. Only you can do that work, and so we ask that you would. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.